Chapter 19, Part 1 They Shall Be Called the Children of God They shall be called the children of God. Matthew 5, 9 In these words, the glorious privilege of the saints is set down. This is the great honor conferred upon those who have made their peace with God and who labor to make peace among brethren. They shall be called the children of God. They shall be called. That is, they will be so regarded and esteemed of God. God never misidentifies anything. He does not call them children who are not children. Thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. Luke 1, 76. That is, you will be so. They shall be called the children of God. That is, they will be regarded and acknowledged as children. The resulting premise is that peacemakers are the children of the Most High. God is said in Scripture to have many children, by eternal generation. So only Christ is the natural Son of His Father. Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Psalm 2, 7. By creation. So the angels are the sons of God. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job 38, 7. By participation of dignity. So king and rulers are said to be children of the high God. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Psalm 82, 6. By visible profession. So God has many children. Hypocrites forge a title of sonship. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Genesis 6, 2. And by real sanctification. So all the faithful are specifically and absolutely the children of God. So that I may illustrate and enlarge this, and so that believers may sip much sweetness out of this gospel flower, I will discuss and demonstrate these seven points. 1. We are not naturally the children of God. 2. What it means to be the children of God. 3. How we come to be made children. 4. The signs of God's children. 5. The love of God in making us children. 6. The honor of God's children. and 7. The privileges of God's children. We are not naturally the children of God. As Jerome says, we are not born God's children, but are made so. By nature, we are strangers to God. We are swine, not sons. 2 Peter 2.22 Will a person leave his estate to his swine? He will give them his acorns, but not his jewels. By nature, we have the devil for our father. Ye are of your father the devil. John 8.44 A wicked person may search the records of hell for his ancestry. What it means to be the children of God This childship consists in two things, adoption and infusion of grace. Childship consists in adoption, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 4, 5 The true nature of adoption consists of three things. 1. A transition or translation from one family to another. He who is adopted is taken out of the old family of the devil and hell 
Ephesians 2, 2-3, to which he was heir apparent, and is made part of the family of heaven, a noble family. Ephesians 2, 19. God is his father, Christ is his elder brother, he is a co-heir with the saints, and he is a fellow servant in that family with the angels. 2. Adoption consists in an immunity and release from all the laws of the former family. Forget also thy father's house. Psalm 45.10. He who is spiritually adopted has nothing more now to do with sin. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? Hosea 14.8. A child of God indeed deals with sin as with an enemy to whom he gives battle, but not as with a Lord to whom he yields obedience. He is freed from sin. Romans 6 7. But I don't say that he is freed from duty. Was it ever heard that a child would be freed from duty to his parents? This is such a freedom as rebels take. And three, adoption consists in a legal initiation into the rights and royalties of the family into which the person is to be adopted. These are mainly two. A. The first right is a new name. He who is divinely adopted assumes a new name. Before he was a slave, now he is a son. Before he was a sinner, now he is a saint. This is a name of honor that is better than any title of prince or monarch. To him that overcometh will I give a white stone, and in the stone a new name written. Revelation 2.17. The white stone signifies pardon. The new name signifies adoption. The new name is put in the white stone to show that our adoption is based upon our justification. This new name is written to show that God has all the names of His children written in the book of life. And B, the second right, is giving the person adopted an interest in the inheritance. Making someone an heir implies a relation to an inheritance. A person does not adopt another to a title, but to an estate. So God, in adopting us for His children, gives us a glorious inheritance, the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 1.12. It is pleasant. It is an inheritance in light. It is safe. God keeps the inheritance for His children. 1 Peter 1.4. And He keeps them for the inheritance. 1 Peter 1.5. So that they cannot be hindered from taking possession. There is no disinheriting. For the saints are co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8.17. They are members of Christ, Colossians 1.18. The members cannot be disinherited unless the head is. The heirs never die. Eternity is a jewel of their crown. They shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 22.5 Before I move on, a question may arise. How do God's adopting and man's adopting differ? In four ways. First, man adopts to supply a deficiency because he has no children of his own. But God does not adopt for this reason. He had a son of his own, the Lord Jesus. He was his natural son and the son of his love, testified by a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Matthew 3.17 Never was there any son so much like the Father. He was His exact image. 
the express image of his person. Hebrews 1, 3. He was such a son who was worth more than all the angels in heaven, being made so much better than the angels. Hebrews 1, 4. God does not adopt out of necessity, but out of compassion. Secondly, when a man adopts, he adopts only one heir, but God adopts many in bringing many sons unto glory. Hebrews 2.10. A poor, trembling Christian may say, Why would I ever look for this privilege to be a child of God? This is true, if God acted as a man. If he adopted only one son, then you might despair. But he adopts millions. He brings many sons unto glory. Indeed, the reason why a man adopts only one may be because he doesn't have enough wealth for more. If he would adopt many, his land would not hold out. However, God has enough land to give to all his children. In my Father's house are many mansions. John 14, 2. Thirdly, when man adopts, he does so with ease. It is simply sealing a deed, and the thing is done. But when God adopts, it puts him to a much greater expense. It sets his wisdom to work to find out a way to adopt us. It was no easy thing to reconcile hell and heaven, to make the children of wrath the children of the promise. Then, when God, in his infinite wisdom, had found out a way, it was no easy way. It cost God the death of his natural son to make us his adopted sons. When God was about to make us sons and heirs, He could not seal the deed except by the blood of His own Son. It did not cost God as much to make us creatures as to make us sons. To make us creatures only cost Him the speaking of a word, but to make us sons cost the outpouring of blood. And fourthly, when man adopts, he establishes only earthly privileges upon his heir. But God establishes heavenly privileges such as justification and glorification. Men leave their land to the people they adopt, but God does more. He not only gives his land to his children, but he gives himself to them. I will be to them a God. Hebrews 8:10. Not only is heaven their portion, but God is their portion. Psalm 73:25-26. God's adopting and declaring his children is by infusion of grace. When God makes anyone his child, he stamps his image upon them. This is more than any person living can do. He may adopt someone, but he cannot change his nature. If he is of an ill-tempered, unrefined nature, he cannot change it. But God, in making his children, makes them suitable for sonship. He prepares and sanctifies them for this privilege. He changes their disposition. He files off the coarseness of their nature. He makes them not only sons, but saints. They are of another spirit. Numbers 14.24. They become meek and humble. They are partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4. The third thing is how we come to be the children of God. There is a double cause of our becoming God's children. The impulsive cause is God's free grace. We were rebels and traitors, and what could move God to make sinners sons except free grace? Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, 
according to the good pleasure of His will. Ephesians 1, 5. Free grace gave the deciding voice. Adoption is mercy spun out of the heart of free grace. It was much for God to take a clump of dirt and make it a star, but it is more for God to take a piece of clay and sin and install it into the glorious privilege of sonship. How will the saints read over the lectures of free grace in heaven? The basic or instrumental cause of our sonship is faith. Baptism does not make us children. That is indeed a badge and uniform and gives us the right to many external privileges, but the thing that makes God recognize us as children is faith. Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26. Before faith is formed, we have nothing to do with God. As the author of Hebrews speaks in another sense, we are bastards and not sons. Hebrews 12.8. An unbeliever may call God his judge, but not his father. Wicked people may draw near to God in ordinances and hope that God will be their father, but while they are unbelievers, they are bastards and God will not father them, but will lay them at the devil's door. Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Faith validates us. It confers upon us the title of sonship and gives us the right to inherit. How then we should labor for faith? Without faith we are creatures, not children. Without faith we are spiritually illegitimate. This word illegitimate is a term of dishonor. Those who are illegitimate are looked upon with disgrace. We call them misbegotten. You who wear your silks and velvets, but are in the state of nature, you are illegitimate. God looks upon you with an eye of scorn and contempt. You are a vile person, a son of the earth, of the seed of the serpent. The devil can show as good a coat of arms as you. This word illegitimate also implies misfortune and misery. Illegitimate people cannot inherit legally. The land goes only to those who are lawful heirs. Until we are the children of God, we have no right to heaven, and there is no way to be children except by faith. Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Two things are to be discussed here. One, what faith is, and two, why faith makes us children. What faith is? If faith brings us into sonship, it is important for us to know what faith is. There is a twofold faith. There is a more lenient general faith. When we believe the truth of all that is revealed in the Holy Scriptures, this is not the faith that results in the privilege of sonship. The devils believe all the articles in the creed. It is not the mere knowledge of a medicine or believing the effective power of it that will cure someone who is sick. This general faith, so much proclaimed by some, will not save. A person may have this and not love God. He may believe that God will come to judge the living and the dead, 2 Timothy 4, 1, and hate him as the prisoner believes that the judge is coming to the trial, yet abhors the thought of him. Beware of resting in a general faith. You may have this and be no better than devils. 
And there is also a special faith, when we not only believe the report we hear of Christ, but we also rest upon Him and embrace Him, taking hold of the horns of this altar, 1 Kings 1.50, resolving there to abide. In the body there are sucking veins that draw the meat into the stomach and digest it there. So faith is the sucking vein that draws Christ into the heart and engages Him there. This is the faith by which we are made children of God, and wherever this faith is, it is not like medicine in a dead man's mouth, but is exceedingly effective. It compels us to duty. It works by love. Galatians 5 6. But why does faith make us children? Why don't other graces such as repentance, love, etc., do so? It is because faith is instituted by God and is honored to this work of making us children. God's institution gives faith its value and validity. It is the king's stamp that makes the coin acceptable for use. If he would put his stamp upon brass or leather, it would go into use just as silver. The great God has authorized and put the stamp of his institution upon faith, and that makes it valid for use and gives it a privilege above all the graces to make us children. Faith makes us children as it is the vital principle. The just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk 2 4. All of God's children are living. None of them are stillborn. We live by faith. Just as the heart is the fountain of life in the body, so faith is the fountain of life in the soul. Faith also makes us children as it is the uniting grace. It knits us to Christ. The other graces cannot do this. By faith we are one with Christ, and so we are related to God. Being united to the natural son, we become adopted sons. The kindred comes in by faith. God is the Father of Christ. Faith makes us Christ's brethren. Hebrews 2.11. And so God becomes our Father. The fourth point to be discussed is to show the signs of God's children. It's important for us to know whose children we are. Augustine said that all mankind are divided into two groups. They are either the children of God or the children of the devil. The first sign of our heavenly sonship is tenderness of heart. Because thine heart was tender. 2 Chronicles 34.27. A childlike heart is a tender heart. He who before had a heart of stone now has a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36.26. A tender heart is like melting wax to God. He may set whatever seal he desires upon it. This tenderness of heart shows itself in three ways. 1. A tender heart grieves for sin. A child weeps for offending his father. Peter showed a tender heart when Christ looked upon him. He remembered his sin and he wept like a child. Luke 22:62. Clement of Alexandria said that he never heard a cock crow but he wept. Some knowledgeable writers tell us that by much weeping there seemed to be as it were channels made in his blessed face. The smallest hair in the eye makes the eye weep. The smallest sin makes the heart ache. David's heart smote him when he cut off the lap of King Saul's garment. 
1 Samuel 24, 5. What would it have done if he had cut off his head? 2. A tender heart melts under mercy. Although the rain of tears falls from a gracious eye when God thunders by affliction, yet the heart is never so kindly melted as under the sunbeams of God's mercy. See how David's heart was melted with God's kindness. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that Thou hast brought me hitherto? 2 Samuel 7.18 There was a gracious thaw upon his heart. This is what a child of God says, Lord, who am I, a piece of dust and sin kneaded together, that the warm beams of free grace should shine upon me? Who am I, that, when I lay in my blood, you would show compassion to me and spread the golden wings of mercy over me? The soul is overcome with God's goodness. The tears drop and the love glows. Mercy has a melting influence upon the soul. And three, a tender heart trembles under God's threatenings. My flesh trembleth for fear of thee. Psalm 119, 120. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place, and didst rend thy clothes. 2 Chronicles 34, 27. If the father is angry, the child trembles. When ministers herald the thunder and threats of God against sin, tender souls sit in a trembling posture. God delights in this frame of heart. To this man will I look, even to him that trembleth at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. A wicked man, like the Leviathan, is made without fear. Job 41, 33. He neither believes the promises nor fears the threatenings. Even when judgment is proclaimed against sin, he laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Job 41, 29. He thinks either that God does not know and does not see, or he is powerless and cannot punish. The mountains quake before the Lord, the hills melt, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Nahum 1 5. However, the hearts of sinners are harder than the rocks. A hardened sinner, like Nebuchadnezzar, has the heart of a beast given to him. Daniel 4 16. A childlike heart is a tender heart. The stone is taken away. The second sign of sonship is assimilation. You have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Colossians 3.10. The child resembles the father. God's children are like their heavenly father. They bear his very image and imprint. Wicked people say they are the children of God, but there is too great a dissimilarity and contrast. The Jews bragged that they were Abraham's children, but Christ refuted this argument by saying they were not like him. Ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. John 8.40 you say you are Abraham's children, and you go about to kill me. Abraham would not have murdered an innocent person. You are more like Satan than Abraham. Ye are of your father the devil. John eight forty four. 
Those who are proud, worldly, and malicious may say, Our Father which art in hell. It is blasphemy to call God our Father and make the devil our example. God's children resemble Him in meekness and holiness. They are His walking likenesses. Just as the seal stamps its print and likeness upon the wax, so God stamps the print and image of His own beauty upon His children. The third sign of God's children is that they have the Spirit of God. He is called the Spirit of Adoption. Ye have received the Spirit of Adoption. Romans 8.15 How will we know that we have received the Spirit of Adoption, and so are in the state of adoption? The Spirit of God has a threefold work in them who are made children. One, a regenerating work. Two, a supplicating work. And three, a witnessing work. A regenerating work. Whoever the Spirit adopts, he regenerates. God's children are said to be born of the Spirit. John 3 6. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. John 3 5. Before we are baptized with this new name of sons and daughters, we must first be born of the Spirit. We are not God's children by creation, but by renovation. We don't become his children by our first birth, but by our new birth. This new birth produced by the Word as the material cause, James 1, 18, and by the Spirit as the efficient cause, is nothing else but a change of nature, Romans 12, 2. Although it's not a perfect change, yet it is a complete change, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. This change of heart is as necessary as salvation. How will we know that we have this regenerating work of the Spirit? We will know by two ways, by the agony and by the effects. By the agony, there are spiritual pains before the new birth. There are some bruisings of soul, some groanings and crying out, and some strugglings in the heart between flesh and spirit. They were pricked in their heart. Acts 2.37 The child has sharp thrusts before the birth. So it is in the new birth. I acknowledge that the new birth is marked by more and less. All people do not have the same pangs of humiliation, yet all have pangs. All people feel the hammer of the law upon their heart, though some are more bruised with this hammer than others. God's Spirit is a spirit of bondage before He is a spirit of adoption. Romans 8.15 What then will we say to those who are as ignorant about the new birth as Nicodemus? He asked, How can a man be born when he's old? John 3.4 The new birth is mocked by the ungodly, though it is a treasured secret to the godly. Some people thank God that they never had any trouble of spirit. They were always at peace. These people bless God for the greatest curse. It is a sign they are not God's children. The child of grace is always born with pangs. By the effects, the new birth is known by the effects, which are these sensibility. The infant who is newborn is sensible of the slightest touch. If the Spirit has regenerated you, 
you are sensible of the outbreaks and first risings of sin that you did not perceive before. Paul cries out of the law in his members. Romans 7:23. The newborn saint sees sin in the root. Circumspection. He who is born of the Spirit is careful to preserve grace. He utilizes the heart of ordinances. 1 Peter 2, 1. He is fearful of that which may endanger his spiritual life. 1 John 5, 18. He lives by faith, yet passes the time of his sojourning in fear. 1 Peter 1, 17. This is the first work of the Spirit in those who are made children, a regenerating work. A supplicating work. The Spirit of God has a supplicating work in the heart. The Spirit of adoption is a spirit of supplication. Ye have received the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15. While the child is in the womb, he cannot cry. While people lie in the womb of their natural condition, they cannot pray effectively. However, when they are born of the Spirit, then they cry, Abba, Father. Prayer is nothing else but the soul's breathing itself into the heart of its Father. It is a sweet and familiar relationship with God. As soon as the Spirit of God comes into the heart, He sets it praying. No sooner was Paul converted, but the next word is, Behold, he prayeth. Acts 9.11. It is reported in the life of Martin Luther that when he prayed, he did so with much reverence as if he were praying to God, and with much boldness as if he had been speaking to his friend. Eusebius reported of Emperor Constantine that every day he used to close himself up in some secret place in his palace, and there on bent knees make his devout prayers and discourses to God. God's Spirit tunes the strings of the affections, and then we make melody in prayer. For anyone to say in derision, you pray by the Spirit, is blasphemy against the Spirit. It is a main work of the Spirit of God in the hearts of His children to help them to pray. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6. Many of the children of God do not have such abilities to express themselves in prayer. How then does the Spirit help their weaknesses? Although they don't always have the gifts of the Spirit in prayer, yet they have the groans of the Spirit. Romans 8.26 Gifts are the ornaments of prayer, but not the life of prayer. A carcass may be hung with jewels. Although the Spirit may deny fluency of speech, yet He gives fervency of desire, and such prayers are most prevalent. The prayers that the Spirit composes in the hearts of God's children have these threefold qualifications. 1. The prayers of God's children are believing prayers. Prayer is the key. Faith is the hand that turns it. Faith feathers the arrow of prayer and makes it pierce the throne of grace. Whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. Matthew 21:22 Jerome said about this that he would not presume to pray unless he brought faith along with him 
To pray and not believe is, as someone said, a kind of jeer offered to God, as if we thought either He didn't hear or wouldn't answer our prayer. In order for faith to be alive in prayer, we must bring Christ in our arms when we appear before God. Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering wholly unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. 1 Samuel 7 9. This sucking lamb typified Christ. When we come to God in prayer, we must bring the lamb, Christ, along with us. Themistocles carried the king's son in his arms and so pacified the king when he was angry. The children of God present Christ in the arms of their faith. 2. The prayers of God's children composed by the Spirit are ardent prayers. Ye have received the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15. Father, that implies faith. We cry, that implies fervency. The incense was to be laid upon burning coals. Leviticus 16.12. The incense was a type of prayer. The burning coals represent fervency in prayer. Elias prayed earnestly. James 5.17. The Greek language says that in praying he prayed. That is, he did it with intensity. In prayer, the heart must boil over with the heat of affection. Prayer is compared to unutterable groans. Romans 8.26. It alludes to a woman who is in the pangs of childbirth. We should be in pangs when we are travailing for mercy. Such prayer commands God Himself. Isaiah 45.11. And three, the prayers of God's children are heart cleansing prayers. They purge out sin. Many people pray against sin and sin against prayer. God's children not only pray against sin, but they pray down sin. A witnessing work. The Spirit of God has a witnessing work in the heart. God's children have not only the influence of the Spirit, but they also have the witness of the Spirit. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Romans 8.16. There is a threefold witness a child of God has the witness of the Word, the witness of conscience, and the witness of the Spirit. The Word makes the major premise He who is in such a manner qualified is a child of God. Conscience makes the minor premise But you are so divinely qualified. The Spirit makes the conclusion that therefore you are a child of God. The Spirit joins with the witness of conscience. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit. Romans 8.16. The Spirit teaches the conscience to search the records of Scripture and find its proof for heaven. It helps conscience to spell out its name in a promise. It bears witness with our spirit. But how will I know the witness of the Spirit from a delusion? The Spirit of God always witnesses according to the Word, just as the echo answers the voice. Enthusiasts speak much of the Spirit, but they leave the Word. 
Any claimed inspiration that is either without the Word or against it is an imposture. The Spirit of God authored the Word. 2 Peter 1.21 If the Spirit would witness in any way other than according to the Word, the Spirit would be divided against Himself. He would be a spirit of contradiction, witnessing one thing for a truth in the Word and another thing different from it in a person's conscience. The fourth sign of God's children is zeal for God. They are zealous for His day, for His truth, and for His glory. Those who are born of God are intolerant of His dishonor. Moses was cool in his own cause, but hot in God's. When the people of Israel acted foolishly in regard to the golden calf, Moses broke the tables. Exodus 32:19. When Paul saw the people of Athens given to idolatry, his spirit was stirred in him. Acts 17:16. The Greek text says that his spirit was embittered, or, as the word may signify, he was in an eruption or a burning fit of zeal. He couldn't contain himself, but with this fire of zeal he let loose against their sin. Just as we will answer for empty and irreverent words, so we will answer for sinful silence. It's dangerous in this sense to be possessed with a mute devil. Matthew 9:32. David said that the zeal of God's house had eaten him up. Psalm 69, 9. Many Christians, whose zeal once had almost eaten them up, have now eaten up their zeal. They have grown lukewarm and neutral. The breath of acceptance or advancement blowing upon them has cooled their heat. I can never believe that he has the heart of a child in him who can be patient when God's glory suffers. Can a trusting child endure to hear his father reproached? Although we should be silent under God's displeasure, yet we should not be silent under his dishonor. When there is a holy fire kindled in the heart, it will break forth at the lips. Zeal, tempered with holiness, is the white glow that gives the soul its best complexion. Of all others, let ministers be uncompromising when God's glory is contested and obscured. A minister without zeal is like salt that has lost its savor. Matthew 5.13. Zeal will make people take wrongs done to God as done to themselves. It's reported of Chrysostom that he reproved any sin against God as if he himself had received a personal wrong. Let not ministers be either shaken with fear or seduced with flattery. God never made ministers to be as false mirrors, to make bad faces look fair. For lack of this fire of zeal, they are in danger of another fire. Even the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, into which the fearful will be cast. Revelation 21, 8. The fifth sign of God's children is that those who are born of God are of a more noble and heavenly spirit than people of the world. They care about things above. Colossians 3 2. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. 1 John 5 4. The children of God live in a higher region. They are compared to eagles. Isaiah 40 31. In regard to their nobleness and heavenly mindedness, their souls are fled upward. 
Christ is in their heart, Colossians 1, 27, and the world is under their feet, Revelation 12, 1. People of the world are always stumbling in thick clay. They are children of the earth. They are not eagles, but earthworms. The saints are of another spirit. They are born of God and walk with God as the child walks with the father. Noah walked with God, Genesis 6, 9. God's children show their high pedigree in their heavenly conversation and life, Philippians 3, 20. The sixth sign of adoption is love to those who are children. God's children are knit together in the bond of love, Colossians 2, 2 just as all the parts of the human body are knit together by various nerves and ligaments. If we are born of God, then we love the brotherhood, 1 Peter 2.17. He who loves the person also loves the image of that person. The children of God are His walking representations, and if we are of God, we love those who have His image and representation drawn upon their souls. If we are born of God, we love the saints despite their weaknesses. Children love one another even though they have some imperfections of nature or physical abnormalities. We love gold in the ore even though it has some dross in it. The best saints have their blemishes. We read of the spot of God's children, Deuteronomy 32, 5. A saint in this life is like a lovely face with a scar on it. If we are born of God, we love His children even though they are poor. We love to see the image and picture of our Father even if it's hung in a poor frame. We love to see a rich Christ in a poor man. If we are children of the highest, we show our love to God's children. We do so by valuing them above others. He who is born of God honoreth them that fear the Lord. Psalm 15, 4. The saints are the dearly beloved of God's soul. Jeremiah 12, 7. They are his jewels. Malachi 3, 17. They are of the true royal blood, and he who is divinely adopted sets a higher estimate upon these people than upon others. We also show our love to the children of God by valuing their company above others. Children love to associate and be together. The communion of saints is precious. Christ's doves will flock together in company. Like associates with like. I am a companion of all them that fear thee. Psalm 119.63. We read that Abraham bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. Genesis 23.7. A child of God has a love of civility to all, but a love of contentment only to those who are fellow heirs with him of the same inheritance. People may test their adoption by this standard. It appears plainly that those who hate those who are born of God are not the children of God. They stain and darken the silver wings of Christ's doves by their malicious condemnation. They cannot endure the society of the saints. Just as vultures hate sweet smells and avoid them, so the wicked do not love to come near the godly. 
They cannot abide the precious perfume of their graces. They hate these sweet smells. It's a sign that they are of the serpent's offspring who hate the seed of the woman. Genesis 3:15, Revelation 12:17. The seventh sign of God's children is to delight to be much in God's presence. Children love to be in the presence of their father. Where the king is, there is the court. Where the presence of God is, there is heaven. God is present in his ordinances in a special manner. They are the ark of his presence. If we are children, we love to be much in holy duties. We draw near to God in the use of ordinances. We come into our Father's presence. In prayer, we have secret conference with God. In the Word, we hear God speaking from heaven to us, and every child of God delights to hear his Father's voice. In the sacraments, God kisses his children with the kisses of his lips. Song of Solomon 1 2. He gives them a smile of his face and a special seal of his love. It is good for me to draw near to God. Psalm 73 28. It is sweet being in his presence. Every true child of God says, A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. Psalm 84 10. Those who neglect God's ordinances are not God's children because they don't care to be in His presence. They love the tavern better than the temple. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Genesis 4:16. That doesn't mean that he was out of God's sight. Psalm 139:7. But it means that Cain went out from the church of God, where the Lord gave the visible signs of His presence to His people. The eighth sign is compliance with the will of our Heavenly Father. A childlike heart answers to God's call as the echo answers to the voice. It's like the flower that opens and shuts with the sun. A childlike heart opens to God and shuts to temptation. The motto of a newborn saint is, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. 1 Samuel 3, 9. When God instructs His children to pray in their closets, subdue sin, and suffer for His name, they are determined to obey. They will lay down their lives at their Father's call. Hypocrites talk about God and speak of Him well, but they refuse to obey and follow Him. They are not children, but rebels. The last sign is that he who is a child of God will work to make others children of God. The holy seed of grace reproduces. Galatians 4:19 and Philemon 1:10. He who is of the royal seed will be ambitiously desirous to bring others into the family. Are you divinely adopted? You will earnestly strive to make your child a child of the most high. How Christians should bring up their children. There are two reasons why godly parents will strive to bring their children into the heavenly family. One, out of conscience. A good parent sees the harm he has done to his child. He has spread the plague of sin to him, and in conscience he will try to make some restitution. In the old law, he who had smitten and wounded another was obligated to see him healed and pay for his cure. Exodus 21, 18-19 
Parents have given their children a wound in their souls, and therefore must do what in them lies by way of admonition, prayers, and tears to see the wound healed. And two, out of fervent zeal to the honor of God. He who has tasted God's love and adoption looks upon himself as obligated to bring God all the glory he can. If he has children or acquaintances who are strangers to God, he would gladly promote the work of grace in their hearts. It is a glory to Christ when multitudes are born to him. How far they are from being God's children who have no concern to bring others into the family of God. Those employers are to blame who pay more attention to their employees' work than to their souls. Those parents are to blame who are careless about the souls of their children. They do not drop in the principles of knowledge to them, but allow them to do whatever they want. They will let them lie and swear, but not have them pray. They allow them to read books of fiction and amusement, but do not have them read Scripture. Some people say that to catechize and teach our children God's Word is to take God's name in vain. Is fulfilling God's command taking His name in vain? These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Deuteronomy 6, 6-7 Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6 Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4 this threefold cord of Scripture is not easily broken. Ecclesiastes 4.12 The saints of old were continually planting principles of holy knowledge in their children. I know, Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Genesis 18.19 And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart, and with a willing mind. 1 Chronicles 28, 9. It is certain that Abraham and David did not take God's name in vain. There is much need of planting holy instructions to surmount the poisonous weeds of sin that grow. When agriculturalists plant young trees, they attach supports to them to keep them from bending. Children are young plants. The heavenly precepts of their parents are like supports set around them to keep them from bending to error and profaneness. When can there be a better season to dispense and infuse knowledge into children than when they are young? Now is a time to let them drink the sincere milk of the Word. 1 Peter 2 2. Some people may object that it is no use to teach our children the knowledge of God that they have no sense of spiritual things and are not any better for our instructions. I answer that we read in Scripture of children who, by virtue of instruction, have had their tender years sanctified. Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him the Scriptures from his cradle, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.15 Timothy drank in Christianity, as it were, with his milk. We read of young children who cried Hosanna to Christ and trumpeted forth his praises, 
Matthew 21:15. Those children of Tyre certainly had some seeds of good worked in them in that they showed their love to Paul and would help him on his way to the seashore. They all brought us on our way with wives and children. Acts 21, 5. The Apostle Paul had a convoy of young saints to accompany him to the ship. Suppose our counsel and instruction does not at present prevail with our children. It may afterward take effect. The seed a person sows in his ground does not immediately spring up, but in its season it brings forth a crop. He who plants a tree does not see the full growth until many years later. If we must not instruct our children because they don't at present reap the benefit, by the same reason we shouldn't baptize our children because at present they don't have the sense of baptism. By the same reason, ministers should not preach the word because at present many of their hearers have no benefit. If our counsels and admonitions do not prevail with our children, yet we have delivered our own souls. There is comfort in carrying out our moral duties and responsibilities. We mustn't worry ourselves about results and possibilities. Duty is our work. Success is God's. Considering all this should make parents encourage holy instructions upon their children. Those who are of the family of God and those whom He has adopted for children will make much effort to have their children more God's children than theirs. They will travail in birth until Christ is formed in them. Galatians 4.19 A true saint is a magnet that will always be drawing others to God. Let this suffice to have spoken of the signs of adoption. I proceed. The fifth point to be discussed is the love of God in making us children. End of part one.